The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading is Mark 12, 1-12. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son, Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers, they said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, kill the farmers, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Ariel. Have you ever thought about how knowing the cost of something changes how you act? So if, just imagine a a shiny piece of metal falls out of your pocket. If it's a quarter, right, how long do you look for that? If you're not a kid, you you probably look for maybe 30 seconds, and you're like, ah, it's just a quarter. If it's your car keys, right, you search for it till you find it, right? You you look everywhere. You, You pull the junk drawer, take everything out. You look under the couch, search through the leftover popcorn and the lost socks and the random trash that has been there since the last time you left your, lost your keys, right? The, the value of the object changes how you act. There are probably some people in here who bought a house or a car that's required a lot of repairs and thought to themselves, if I knew how much this was going to cost, I never would have bought it, right? Because understanding the cost affects our decisions. Therefore, Making the right decision is easier if we know beforehand what it costs. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus details the cost of rejecting him as Lord and Savior. He tells a story that those hearing him, they would have understood it immediately. And it's a story about the true cost of rejecting Jesus. And here's why he tells it. He tells it to those who heard it then and those who read it now They'll understand what it means, what it costs to reject him, and instead of rejecting him, they'll receive him as Lord. So as we look at this story this morning, I want want to encourage you to consider your own response to Jesus. Have you received him as Lord and Savior, or are you rejecting him? Jesus will show us the difference literally is life and death. And so so don't leave here this morning to, to go to your Easter feast without understanding what rejection costs 
and then doing something about it. Because this is the good news, right, that we've been singing about all morning, that we saw witness through the baptisms just a few moments earlier, is that Jesus invites all of us to come to him. Every single one of us is invited to come to Jesus to receive him today. And so this story is a, a powerful warning about rejecting Jesus. There are five main characters in the story. In the first verse, we were introduced to three of them. Look again with me at Mark 12, verse 1. He began, Jesus began to speak to them in parables or stories. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Now we know the, the main audience for Jesus' story are the religious leaders in Israel. We know that because chapter 11 ends with Jesus having a conversation with them where he asked them a question and they refused to answer him. And the, the verse following this story is their reaction to the story. So we know it's primarily targeted to them. And, and so the, the, the ones that he's teaching, these are students of the Old Testament. They are, they are students of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so immediately when Jesus started telling this story, they would have identified the first two characters in the drama because Jesus is, is sort of retelling a story that God told through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. So listen to this. It's going to be on the screen. Isaiah 5, this is a message that God delivered to the nation of Israel. Here's what God said. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I loved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And now here in verse 2 is where we see the similarities. Jesus uses some of the same descriptions just so they understand for sure what he's talking about. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planned it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. And now here's the rest of the story in Isaiah. He expected it to yield good grapes, but he yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain shall not fall on it. Now listen to this, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. So the vineyard is the nation of Israel, and the owner of the vineyard is God. And just like in the story, God carefully and lovingly planted Israel in the soil of a land he promised them. From the very start, every good thing that happened to the nation of Israel was a direct result of God's love for them. He was the one who chose Abraham. So that's how the story of the nation of Israel begins with God choosing Abraham, calling him out of this sort of spiritually dry, deserted land. He, he nurtured Abraham like a, a young plant before establishing him and his descendants as a beautiful vineyard. When the Egyptians, like weeds, threatened to choke the life out of Israel, God cleared the weeds away so that Israel could grow strong and healthy. God was the one who anointed David as king of Israel, which produced a period of fruitfulness and flourishing that was unlike any other nation. 
But in spite of all that God did to care for them, they produced little fruit. So generation after generation rejected God and began to worship idols. And instead of bearing good fruit, what they bore was this rotten, worthless, inedible, poisonous, toxic fruit. Now God had instructed Israel, he had said, listen, the reason that I am caring for you, the reason I am planting you is so that you'll produce a type of fruit that will cause the other nations to understand that that, that this is what you need to do. You need to worship the true God. And in these very brief moments of obedience, this was seen in Israel. Like there was this fruitfulness of peace and prosperity and security. But each time that good fruit would disappear, And it would be replaced by the rotten, poisonous fruit of unbelief and rebellion. And so in Isaiah's prophecy, God promised judgment on Israel for their persistent disobedience. He would bring nations in, he says, to destroy the vineyard. He said he would cause the rain not to fall on it. And there would be no one to weed it or prune it. Israel would fall into disrepair. Not long after this prophecy of Isaiah, Babylon, another nation, a power, it swept into Israel, invaded it. It hauled off all the best and brightest of the young people, and then it destroyed the city and the temple. And though God allowed just 70 years later Israel to return from captivity, the 600 years between Isaiah's prophecy and Jesus' story was a time of rebellion and a time of being conquered by other nations, a time of disrepair. And so the background of Jesus' story is this story about God and Israel. And what we're seeing here is that, is that Jesus is, is telling the second chapter of the story because he, he, he mentions God, he mentions Israel, and then he introduces in that first verse a a a new character, a character that wasn't part of the original story. And so this is like Jesus telling God in the vineyard 2.0 or the second chapter. Who are these tenant farmers? They're they're not mentioned in Isaiah's prophecy. So who are they? Well, sometimes in Israel, a wealthy man would, would spot a good piece of land. He would buy that piece of land and he would begin sort of the process of turning it into, into sort of fertile farmland. And so he would invest time and money and energy, like clearing it of all the stones and debris, of, of getting the things built so that it could be protected and cared for. And then after he spent all that time and money and investment getting the land ready, he would, he would hire someone to farm it for him. They're the tenants. And from that point forward, the responsibility for the care of the land, the responsibility to protect it and nourish it and nurture it fell on the tenants. And so here's the question, sort of the obvious question. If the vineyard is Israel, who is responsible for the spiritual fruitfulness of Israel? Who has God left in charge to nurture and protect and care for and provide for Israel. And so, right, the answer are the religious leaders. They're the ones in charge of the, the nation's health. They're responsible for nurturing the faith of God's people. And so that's why in verse 12 we see that the scribes and Pharisees, those religious leaders, they understood immediately that this story was about them, that they were the tenant farmers. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders. And so here's the question, how are they doing? 
Well, if you've been with us as we've studied the Gospel of Mark, you could probably guess how they would answer that question, right? I mean, if they were a kindergarten teacher, they would put all of the gold stars on their chart. We're doing a fabulous job. And yet, if you were to step back just a little bit and say, like, well, really, how is the nation of Israel doing? Is it flourishing and fruitful like a vineyard as it's occupied by Rome? Or is it still seen to be in a time of disrepair because of disobedience? Well, Jesus continues the story. Look at verse 2. He says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. Now, this is standard practice. So when the owner would have hired the tenant farmers, they would have arranged, they would have made an arrangement that when the, the land finally started to produce some, some harvest, some produce, that a share of it would stay with the farmers and that he would collect a share, right? This is only fair, right? He's the one who bought the land and prepared it. He's the one who invested all that time and energy and resources into getting this land ready, sort of like as we drive around town and and we see all these developments happening. Someone pays up front for all that dirt to be moved and for the sewers to be put in and the roads and the sidewalks. And we would expect fairly that they get some of the return when the house is built. Not not just the builders get it, but the, the developer, the one who invested all of that at the start. And so God was the one who invested all of that. God had called Israel. He'd instructed Israel. He'd appointed leaders to Israel. And so God had every reason to expect that Israel would produce this harvest of good fruit. Okay, but he introduces in verse 2, Jesus does a, a fourth character, a servant. Can we identify who the servant is? Well, he continues. Look at verse 3. They took the servant and beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. So again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. See, the owner didn't just send one servant. He sent a long line of servants. And think about this. Each servant came with a message from the owner. Each was rejected, most rejected violently. So who are the servants? Who came with messages from God to the nation of Israel regularly and were rejected by the religious leaders? Well, history tells us, the Old Testament tells us these are the prophets, right? The servants are the prophets. That God sent his messengers to Israel. He's bearing his message and they ignore and they mistreat those in charge of Israel. This goes almost all the way back to the beginning of Israel's history. So the people of Israel regularly rebelled against Moses, who's the first prophet. They criticize, they complain on multiple occasions, they try to undermine his leadership. Elijah, the greatest Old Testament prophet, he has to run from the leaders of Israel and he has to hide in caves and hide in the wilderness and ultimately hide in a foreign country so he's not killed. Isaiah, who who wrote this first prophecy of the vineyard, was, was killed. History tells us he was actually sawn in two. Jeremiah was beaten and thrown into a pit Zechariah was slaughtered in the temple. Now, do you, do you remember what Jesus asked the religious leaders right before he told this story? If you're here last week, do you remember this? So he asked them in chapter 11, verse 30, he said, was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? So what's he asking them? What, what's, what's Jesus asking them? He's asking them, is John the Baptist a true prophet? 
And, and do you remember how the religious leaders answered? Well, they didn't answer. They didn't want to answer. Why? Because they had not listened to him. And so they were, they were sort of stuck on this dilemma at the end of chapter 11. Jesus says, well, is John the Baptist a true prophet? And they say, we can't answer that. And here's why. Everyone knows John the Baptist is a true prophet. I mean, it's obvious. And they have not listened to him. And so they don't want to admit what's obvious. So they say, we can't answer. And so this is another example of, of how they, they did not listen to the servant who was sent by the owner. Now, if you were hearing this story Jesus told, and you weren't aware of what it all meant, you just were hearing the story, how would you think about these tenant farmers? You'd think they're evil, right? I mean, would anyone doubt that these actions are evil, that if if this owner hired you to care for this and you made a, an agreement and it was agreed upon how much you would keep and how much you would send back and he sent his servants, if you simply didn't send it, that would be wrong. But, but not only didn't send it, the servant who's there simply to collect was agreed upon, you beat and you kill and you do it time after time after time. Is there anyone who's going to say this is a good thing? In fact, if this story had actually taken place in Israel... Who do you think would have been the first people to stand up and denounce these wicked farmers? It would have been the religious leaders. But what will they do when they realize they're the farmers? You see, the story's not over, though. There's a one final character. Look at verse 6. He, the owner, still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. We all know who the son is, don't we? That God is so gracious and loving that he sent his own son, Jesus, to his people. But they did not receive him. They rejected him, led by the religious leaders. They arrested Jesus, beat him, and brought him to the Roman governor to be executed. Just three days after Jesus told this story, just three days later, he would hang on the cross as a condemned criminal where he would suffer and die. But why? Why did they reject him? Why does anyone reject Jesus? I mean, consider for a moment the kindness and grace of God in sending prophet after prophet, messenger after messenger before eventually sending his own son. Each one is like a love letter inviting a cheating spouse to be returned, to be forgiven and restored. But in spite of God's patient love, they rejected and killed his son. Why? Verse 7 says, quoting these farmers says, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. You know, ever since I read that, I was studying this week, that, that, that statement has puzzled me. So I have three sons. I, I mean, they, I broke this to them in the last service. They're not going to get much of an inheritance. But if someone killed one of them, I'm not going to give that person their share, right? I, I mean, sometimes I'm frustrated with my sons. I don't ever want someone to kill them. I'm not going to reward them for killing my sons. So, like, isn't this an odd thing to say? If we kill the son then we'll get the inheritance. Why would they think that? Well, there's only one reason. They must believe the owner is dead and that the son is coming because the owner has died. 
Because they, they would never think logically that, that killing the son would have the owner, the father, give them the inheritance. So here's what their words reveal. Their words, words reveal that the owner's in their minds off the scene. He's gone. Like they think their destiny, their future is in their own hands. They can do whatever they want now for there's no one who's going to stop them. Listen, you only reject Jesus if you think deep down you can do whatever you want and get away with it. You, you have to decide that God does not exist, that he will not hold you accountable for your actions, that you and you alone are God. That no one has a right to tell you what to do, to tell you how to live, that your very existence, your life and your future are completely in your hands and God has nothing to do with it. If God does exist, then he is either unconcerned with how you act or powerless to stop you. To reject the kindness that God has shown you by sending his son means you think you are not under God's authority. Do you realize you are under God's authority? See, this story is about more than the nation of Israel. When God created the world, he started with a garden that he had lovingly created for his people and all of us, like Adam and Eve in the garden, like Israel in the vineyard, all of us have rejected his commands. Instead of bearing good fruit, we've borne rotten fruit. We keep ignoring God because we think we can get away with it. Like the tenant farmers, we say, well, he hasn't done anything yet. Maybe he's dead and gone. As Jesus begins to wrap up this story, he asks a question, verse 9, he says this, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? What do you think the owner will do? What do you think the owner should do? Here's the rest of verse 9. He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. God is patient, but he is just. And his justice demands action. The same God who judged Israel by sending Babylon to overthrow the city of Jerusalem would judge the religious leaders who had Jesus killed, and he's the same God who will judge all of those who reject Jesus as his son. See, this story is not just a warning to first century Jewish leaders who delivered Jesus to the Romans to be executed. Jesus has been warning the crowds all along that to reject him is to miss the kingdom of God. And he said, those who do not enter the kingdom will be thrown into hell. Justice is coming. God is patient, but he will not be mocked. You can't play God for a fool. If you sow seeds of rebellion, you will reap a harvest of retribution. And friend, this is what Jesus said. He said, Entering the kingdom of heaven is worth cutting off your hands or cutting off your feet or plucking out your eye. It'd be redder to go through life handicapped, he said, than face the justice of God, that nothing is more fearful than falling into the hands of the owner having rejected his son. Do you realize it is the patient mercy of God that has brought you here this morning? 
Now you might think about why you're here, what happened this morning or earlier this week, the series of events that brought you here. But let me say it is the patience of God. Because God would be just to condemn each one of us to hell immediately upon sinning. But he is patient. He gives time for the seed of the gospel to land in a heart and bear fruit. But don't presume upon his patience. Don't delay. Jesus said this, repent, which means turn from your sin and follow him. Why? Because the kingdom is at hand. The son has come. Now is the time to act. You see, this this passage is primarily a warning about rejecting Jesus. But it ends with hope and a promise. I want you to see this. Jesus wraps up this story by quoting from Psalm 118, which is the very same psalm that was shouted when he entered the city just days earlier. It's a song about the coming king, a song about God's son sent to deliver his people. And it predicts the rejection of Jesus by the religious leaders, but then... I want you to see how something wonderful is promised. Look at verse 10. Jesus asked them, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. See, the rejection and crucifixion of the Son was not the final chapter. God would take the rejected Messiah and he would build something new and wonderful. Now, I'm sure that some who maybe heard Jesus say this thought he was talking about the temple, that after it was torn down, that it would be rebuilt, but he's talking about something far more incredible. God is not building a a new building or even a new country, but a new humanity. Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead, is the cornerstone of a new people. Now, we have seen glimpses of this new humanity throughout Mark's gospel. There was a man with a terrible terminal skin disease, It had already taken his dignity and family and it was about to take his life and Jesus moved with compassion. He reached out his hand and he touched him and everything broken in the man's body was restored. Right, the new humanity will be made whole, restored. A man who could not move his legs was lowered through a hole in the ceiling so Jesus could heal him. And he left Jesus not only bouncing on his working legs, but floating because the weight of his sin had been removed. The new humanity will serve Jesus free from the paralyzing effects of sin and shame. A man driven out of his mind by demonic forces who cut himself and cried day and night was seen by his neighbor sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. The new humanity will no longer struggle with the powers of darkness but will be free to love and live for Jesus. A woman without hope living alone, ostracized because of a medical condition that kept her from worshiping the temple is made whole when she reaches out and touches the very edge of Jesus' garment. A Gentile woman pleading with Jesus on behalf of her dying daughter, running home with hope in her heart because Jesus has ordered death to stand down. A deaf man, a blind man, both now able to see and hear the beauty and wonder of God's grace in the face of Jesus. See, Jesus was rejected and cast aside by the religious leaders, but in the resurrection, God is building something new and marvelous. The end of the story is not rejection, it's rebuilding. 
the first steps in a new world with a new humanity. The first spring after a long winter, the first flowers after the final frost, the first harvest from the master's vineyard. How does someone become part of this new humanity, this thing that God is building upon Jesus? How does one enter the son's kingdom? The answer is simple. In fact, it's too simple for many. Receive Jesus by faith. Like that's it. Receive Jesus by faith. Like the leper forcing his way through the crowd, the lame man rolling up his blankets, the woman touching his garment, the mother begging for scraps, or blind Bartimaeus crying out, have mercy on me, son of David. All it takes is faith. That's it. You've got to believe in the goodness and kindness of the Creator. You've got to stop rejecting the message that He is sending to you even this morning. You've got to turn from your rebellion and simply receive His Son by faith. Rejecting the Son brings judgment and death. Receiving the Son brings blessing and life. That's the point of the story. Listen, God brought you here today to hear this story as an act of his kindness and grace so that you will hear his invitation and you will respond. What will you do with Jesus? Our passage ends with a chilling verse. Look at verse 12. They, the religious leaders, were looking for a way to arrest him. But they feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. The religious leaders, they would not receive this message of God's grace and mercy. Instead of receiving the Son, see what they do? They look for ways to silence Him. Will you leave today and look for ways to silence Jesus speaking? Will you get so busy this afternoon, starting the new week? filling your life with noise and sound and distraction so you don't hear, have to listen to the sun? Listen, I, I, I beg you this morning, do what the leaders wouldn't do. Stop rejecting Jesus, receive him, and then watch him start to do marvelous things in you. Right? He will bring life where there is death, hope where there is only despair, healing where there is brokenness and good fruit where things are rotten. Jesus is calling. He's calling you to come. Will you receive him? Pray with me. Father, my prayer right now is for the one sitting here who will not, has not received you, but today help this be the day where the faith blossoms in their heart. They stop trusting themselves or hoping that they'll simply get away with the rebellion. Instead, they will see the beauty and wonder of Jesus how Jesus died and rose again so that he could lead us to life and flourishing and fruitfulness and blessing in his kingdom. So Father, today, will you save those who do not know you? Will you spare those who for maybe years have rejected you? Will today, will you open eyes, make people see? Those who are deaf to your word, help them hear today. Father, will you bring some good fruit out of us sitting in this room. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.